0: Good evening, church. This is a re-recording of Sunday's sermon on the 1st of January, 2023. Turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel to chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken Father in heaven, we come now to the preaching of your holy word and what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us, what we are not, make us, and what we cannot, we ask that by your spirit you would do for us. Grant to us faith as we open the book, in the name of Christ whom we seek to see in our time together, amen. I want to begin our study in the Gospel of Luke, where the life of the Apostle Paul ends. History tells us that Paul endured his second and final imprisonment in Rome under the Emperor Nero prior to his execution, when he was beheaded in his closing act of witness to Jesus Christ. But in the days before his death, Paul was incarcerated in what has been traditionally called the Mamertine prison. And it was a large cistern that had been originally used to keep a supply of water for Romans. And rather than been used as a source of refreshment, the cistern was emptied of its water and turned into a holding cell for those who were on death row waiting to be executed. Because you see, prisoners in the ancient world were rarely sent to prison as punishment. They were sent to die and it was dark and it was damp and it was cold in that lower chamber in which Paul was occupied. One ancient Roman historian described it as a house of darkness because of its hideous and terrifying appearance. Well, it's here that Paul recorded his last known words before his death, writing his final letter to Timothy, whom he had left behind in Ephesus. And it reads like this For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. In other words, all have left me, but Luke alone is with me. Now you see that last statement speaks volumes. Little is known about Luke. We don't have much information about him. But Paul's last words tell us much about this companion who went with him on his missionary journeys, who stood beside him amidst trial and tribulation, but mostly who stayed by his side in the final moments before his death in that cold, dark dungeon, where all the rest had either fled or departed from him, Demas had deserted him, Cretans had gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, but only Luke had remained. And what we discover about this physician, this doctor, is that he was one of the most loyal companions of Paul, who had risked his life not to forsake, not to abandon, not to desert the apostle. Well, we can ask the question, what compelled Luke never to leave Paul's side. Why did he make the decision to stay? And as I said, he was loyal to Paul. He loved him. He had a profound love for the apostle. You see, for a little over a decade, he had followed Paul as he labored for the gospel from city to city, in danger and in peril across land and even sea. One such occasion took place in the Mediterranean Sea in Acts chapter 27. When the ship that Paul was on took on water, it struck the reef and everyone on that boat had to abandon ship. Well, Luke was there. Luke was there with him, holding on to dear life, onto a plank of wood in order to get to shore safely. Luke followed Paul even if it meant forsaking the ambitions of a well-trained physician. Well, we ask then, what then compelled Luke to write this gospel concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ? It's because his life didn't ultimately revolve around following Paul, but following Christ. And I'm sure that on more than one occasion, Luke would have heard these words from Paul himself. Follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. You see, for Luke, it was about following Christ. It was always about Christ. And what we have in gospel canon is not a memoir of the life and work of Paul, but rather the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. This is what is contained in the gospel of Luke. The saving message, the good news, the God spell, as it reads in the Old English, of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, for this next season of our lives, we will be following Luke. Following Luke as he follows Christ. As he takes us through an orderly account of what took place When God came to dwell with his people in the person of Jesus Christ and that to save his people from their sins. Well, that's my introduction before the introduction. And you might be confused. What do you mean the introduction before the introduction? Well, I want you to notice that at the very outset of Luke's gospel, that he himself has his own introduction an introduction to his gospel. And this is important for us to know, or else Luke wouldn't have bothered to to write it. It's here that he tells us some details as to what he has written, and also why he has written, and even how he has gone about writing what he has written. And he provides for us a sort of instruction manual on how to read his gospel. And with a quick glance, you'll, you'll notice and you'll see that This gospel is nothing short of a short read. It's actually the longest book in the entirety of the New Testament. 24 chapters. And you might be saying, wait, isn't the gospel of Matthew 28 chapters? Yes. But Luke was a little bit more long-winded and he wrote longer chapters than Matthew. Well, if you add the gospel of Luke and with his sequel in the book of Acts, Luke's contribution makes up for more than a quarter of the New Testament, more than any other writer, including Paul. And so to understand his introduction will only help us to understand what God has spoken through him and to us in Holy Scripture. Well, in this introduction, there are three things that I want us to see here. And the first is this that Luke begins by telling us that there was a fascination. That there was a fascination surrounding the events and activities surrounding Jesus. He starts off by saying in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, people were captivated by all that took place in that period of time and that specific place. And many wanted to write this narrative, this story, down. This wasn't fiction. This was historical. It happened in space and time and sparked a writer's frenzy among those who witnessed it. People wanted to give some kind of record of what took place regarding Jesus possibly producing short tracks of some of his miracles, possibly putting together an evangelistic booklet of some kind, there was a buzz, there was a stir. The, the whole story of Christ gave people itchy pens. But however many tracts or letters or booklets were written at that time, what we need to know is that God in his wisdom gave us four inspired, spirit-inspired gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't really have anything else in the Bible that comes in a group of four. That provided for us are four ways of saying the same thing, four ways of looking at the same person, four stories, four accounts about the one man, Jesus Christ. And that should tell us something. It should tell us that the true center of our faith and of our lives can only be Jesus. The fact that there are four gospels demonstrate to us that Jesus Christ must always, always stand at the center. He is the central theme of all of Scripture. He is the central theme of the Old and New Testament. It is as the angel in Revelation 19.10 says, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, meaning that the entirety of Scripture bears witness to Jesus. You know, just before his ascension to the Father, Jesus told his disciples, he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In another place, Jesus said, It's the scriptures, as he declared to the hostile Jewish leaders, that testify about me. And I want you to notice what Luke says here in the beginning of his introduction that he has undertaken to write the things that have been accomplished. But that word there, accomplished, I would say is better translated as fulfilled. And you'll have that if you're looking at a New King James translation. These aren't just events that happened, but events that were fulfilled. These were events that were expected by the people of God, because all throughout the Old Testament, God made a promise From the beginning, God had a plan. And that promise and plan comes to fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What has been fulfilled and accomplished is the redemptive plan of God. And this is what Luke and the other gospel writers wanted to emphasize. This isn't just a biography of Jesus, although that would have been a noble thing for Luke to write. It also isn't a story of a misunderstood teacher or a man's moral and ethical code. The gospel isn't about a failed social revolutionary or even a heroic martyr. Rather, the gospel reveals a savior, a savior who is God incarnate, who takes away the sin of the world. Luke isn't just writing about things that happened. Yes, he is a historian and probably one of the greatest ever to live. But more so, he's an evangelist who wants to preach a message, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, more than any other book in the old and in the new, it is in these four accounts in the Gospels that Jesus Christ is unveiled for us to savor and to see. And you know, as I thought about what to preach, entering into the Sunday pulpit, the reason why I chose Luke is because I believe it is necessary for us as a church to place ourselves under this very gospel. You know, as I think back, it was not without intention and purpose that when Pastor Eric first occupied this pulpit in what was formerly known as Living Word Fellowship, that he began his first Sunday in the Gospel of Matthew. And what we're going to discover in the Gospel of Luke is more of Christ and only Christ. And so there was a fascination regarding the events that transpired, events that were fulfilled surrounding Jesus. And Luke confesses that he too was bitten by this bug. I want you to notice in chapter 1, verse 3, he writes, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Now, Luke, in writing his gospel, he wasn't dismissing the other gospels, nor was he being critical of them. He was rather saying the opposite, because it says, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. You see, Luke, he recognized the work of the apostles. Apostles like James and Peter and John and They were uniquely commissioned by Christ to bear witness to his person and work. They testified as to the risen Christ. But eventually, that apostolic gospel had to be written down. These apostles were not going to be around forever. They were not immortal. And so if their mission was to continue, their message had to be handed down in a more permanent form. And while others began to preserve that apostolic witness, Luke wanted to do the same. And so he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it seemed good to me also. So what do we need to see here in this introduction? Firstly, that there was a fascination, that there was a fascination. And here's the second that there was a passion. Luke had a passion for accuracy. The biggest thing that sets Luke apart from the other gospel writers, and even any other New Testament writer, was that he was Greek. He was a Gentile. And as he acknowledges in his introduction, he was an outsider, as he wasn't an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Christ. He didn't move around with Jesus. He didn't interact with Jesus. He didn't see for himself the things that were accomplished. Now that can be seen as a problem. How so? It's because it's a problem because the question can be raised, well then how can we trust Luke's gospel record? Where did you come up with this, Luke? Where did you get your information? What is your source material? And if anyone is going to take a historical accounts seriously, what will be demanded is the best evidence. Well, what is the best evidence? It is eyewitness testimony. When Peter and John were on the streets of Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ, do you remember what they said? They said, we cannot help speaking of what we have seen and heard. And when Peter writes in his second letter in second Peter chapter one, verse 16, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so you see the source material is important. The evidence is critical. John, he does the same thing in first John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Well, why does John go out of his way to say all of that? It's to establish the evidence. Now, what did Luke have to do? What did Luke have to do since he didn't see with his eyes and touch with his hands? And we can ask the question, why should we trust your gospel, Luke? And his answer would have been this. Just read my introduction. He says in chapter one, verse two, that there were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who delivered the things accomplished to us. Luke's source material are the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Well, what word? Ministers of the word of life, the incarnate word, the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Luke, first of all, was a traveling companion of Paul. And as such, he came in contact with other apostles. He could have visited with Matthew or those in the Jerusalem church who had known the Lord. He had conversations in all likelihood with Mary, the mother of Jesus, helping to provide the only narrative account of Jesus' adolescence. Luke had access to the 70 that Jesus sent out, the women who had ministered to him, the 120 that had gathered in Jerusalem following Christ's ascension, the 500 who had gathered in Galilee. In other words, Luke had all the resources, and without a doubt, Luke exhausted all of them. Because you see, Luke, he wanted to make sure that he got it right. You know, years ago, when I preached through the book of Revelation, my biggest concern amongst all the different interpretations that are out there was simply to get it right. I just wanted to get it right. And getting it right kept me awake at night. It occupied my thoughts throughout the day because I needed to make sure and if there was a resource that was out there to help me, I, I had to get my hands on it. I had to buy it. Well, I ended up amassing over, I would say 70 commentaries and books on the book of Revelation. And they are now stacked high on top of my bookshelves and the upstairs where uh, our guest bedroom is. And whenever someone sleeps over, I am afraid that if there was to be an earthquake in the middle of the night, that our guest would die from the revelation commentaries falling upon them. You see, Luke, he wanted to get it right. And he had to get it right, because you have to realize the context in which Luke wrote his gospel. He wrote in a time when the knowledge of Jesus Christ was current. Some skeptics argue that the gospel writers amplified or that they exaggerated their stories to make their accounts more convincing but they couldn't do that. It's because there were hundreds, better yet thousands of eyewitnesses in that first century that were able to either validate or discredit the accuracy of the gospel records. You need to remember also that there were eyewitnesses who were hostile to Jesus, hostile to the church, who were alive in that time, and there were many of them. And you see, if these gospel records had in some way, twisted the truth, even just a little bit, it would have brought all of Christianity to a halt. Luke had to be careful with his claims. He had to be exact, refusing to be ambiguous or even misleading. And so he says in chapter 1, verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past to write an orderly account. Luke, you see, he couldn't afford to be sloppy. And notice he doesn't say that he had followed some things closely or a majority of the things closely, but Luke's research was comprehensive. He followed all things closely for some time past. It was a comprehensive and and long project that he undertook. And with all things, he had to do careful research. He had to investigate with precision and exactness. What we have in the gospel accounts is historical. It's not fiction. This isn't myth, nor is it make-believe. You see, we live in a world in which the constant narrative is that science deals in the realm of truth and reality and certainty. And that faith lives in the realm of mythology and fiction and imagination. Well, that's not the kind of faith that Luke introduces us to here. There were eyewitnesses and he tells us that he did careful research, which means every person who reads through the pages of Luke, Luke's gospel, need to make a decision of what they're going to do with the gospel records. You just can't walk away from the gospel neutral. The things that have been accomplished among us are either fake or true. This isn't just a biography in which you can read and walk away with information in your mind about a person. And the reason why we know that this isn't just a biography is because notice that in the gospels that the majority of its contents are end-loaded. Much of the material that is written down in all four of the Gospels are are unloaded, meaning that its events mostly take place in the last week of Jesus' life. You see, most biographies are front-loaded. They talk about a person's upbringing, when they were born, where they were born, what things influenced the person to become the person and shape the person into who they became and are. But in the Gospels much of its contents take place in the last week and someone who reads the gospels with an investigative mind has to ask the question why the preoccupation with the last week of his life it's because at the end of the day like what was said before luke isn't writing a biography although the contents are biographical And Luke isn't writing history, although the contents are historical. But Luke is a preacher. Luke is an evangelist, writing for the purpose that people who read this gospel would come to find that this is surely good news. That this Jesus of whom Luke speaks of came to seek and save that which was lost. Now, what does Luke want to tell us in his introduction, lastly? And it's this, that he wrote with intention. Notice Luke's letter or book was written to a particular individual by the name of Theophilus. His name can be translated as a friend of God. And this is why some believe that Luke's gospel was in its immediate context written to any and all believers who call themselves friends of God. And so they kind of see it as very general. But I see it that this friend of God was an actual friend of Luke. It's because he addresses him in an interesting way as most excellent Theophilus. It's very specific. And it's possible that Theo was some kind of high-ranking official whom Luke had befriended uh, while in Rome. But either way, what's more important here is the very reason in which Luke wrote to his friend. Luke writes this. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And then he says this. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. If you were to ask me what is the most important word here in Luke's introduction, I would say it's this word right here, the word certainty, which in the original Greek text in which Luke wrote comes at the very end of the verse and at the very end of his introduction to tell us not to miss his purpose. Certainty. And that word certainty is even stronger. It's more like absolute certainty. This is why I wrote to you, Theo, This is why I wrote to you, Christian. This is why I did the careful research. This is why I made sure to get the story right. This is why I I investigated all these things and followed them closely, that you might have absolute certainty. Well, absolute certainty about what? About the truthfulness concerning Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes through faith in him. You see, Theophilus knew about Jesus, but he needed to know him for sure. You see, there is an important distinction there between those two things. They're not the same. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus with certainty. And truth be told, I'm afraid that this is a very common thing, especially in the Christian church, that there are those that go about their lives simply knowing about Jesus, but never knowing him with certainty and trusting faith. It's possible to have some knowledge of the Lord Jesus, but not to have any certainty that he is truly your savior that he is the Lord and master of your life. And beloved, would this describe the extent of your knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Would this be you? Just knowing about him, but not knowing him for sure. As Luke writes to Theophilus, he says, Read this gospel and be certain be certain of what jesus accomplished be certain of the perfection of his virgin birth be certain of the obedience of his sinless life be certain that he truly is the son of god be certain of what he endured to save sinners from the wrath of god be certain that he suffered and died on the cross for sins be certain that he was raised from the dead to give eternal life be certain that he ascended into heaven and now ministers from the Father's right hand. And here's the thing if you're not a Christian, you can know Jesus Christ for certain that the salvation he accomplished, he did so for you by believing upon him and coming to him in trusting faith. You can have that certainty. And if you are a Christian, Luke says, Read this gospel and be certain. You know, we at times, we have our own doubts, don't we? Like the man who called out to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. We too have our doubts and we struggle. And part of our struggle as fallen creatures living in a fallen world is that we have decided to follow Jesus, but we are prone to wander and prone to leave the God whom we love. And so we, we long to have greater assurance of our faith. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not Christians. It simply means that we are sinners who are struggling to live by faith. But God, He, he calls us, doesn't He, to grow in our faith. And we need to, as Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, to make our calling an election sure. So how do we know for sure? How do we know for certain? Well, the answer Luke gives is this, the gospel. We don't become certain by looking at our own Christian merits or our own spiritual performance. It's because if the assurance of our faith rested on our own ability to follow God, we could never be for sure. We would always have our doubts about our obedience or even about our faith, wondering if we were ever, if we were trusting God as well as we should. Nor does assurance come by going back to the moment when we first trusted in Jesus as if our conversion experience could save us. Assurance doesn't come by looking within And assurance doesn't come by having some special experience. Rather, the only way we become sure of our salvation, and the answer is this, is by looking to Jesus. This is why Luke wrote the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that every friend of God would have certainty. You see, this is the gospel of knowing for sure. He knew that like faith itself, the assurance of faith comes by hearing and hearing the gospel of Christ. It comes by seeing Christ. And so Luke, like a good doctor, like a well-trained physician, he wrote a book that would heal the doubting soul. And so church, led us as we gather Sunday after Sunday, open up the gospel of Luke so that we might see Christ. Is because he is the absolute certainty and the infallible surety of our salvation, ever faithful and ever true. Let us then hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Well, as you bow your heads with me in prayer, I want to read for you a prayer that the English reformers prayed as they searched the gospel of Luke. Let's pray together. Almighty God, whose praise is in the gospel, who called Luke to be an evangelist and physician of the soul, may it please you that by the wholesome medicines of the doctrine delivered by him, that all the diseases of our souls would be healed. Healed through the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is our prayer, that Christ would heal all the diseases of our souls. May we then take the medicine by seeing him and fixing our gaze upon him. We confess that more often than not, we fix our gaze upon ourselves which is, we, which is why we find our faith weakening. Forgive us for making much about ourselves and less about Christ. Help us to see the gospel afresh. May we know not just about Jesus, but know him and our union with him in his death and resurrection. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is the certainty of our faith, we pray. Amen.